second and third John are not the easiest books to read, even though they're just about the shortest books in the New Testament. Third John, I think, definitely is. But they, they kind of feel like inside baseball. And they really are. Because if I understand them right, they're particular letters to a congregation that John was the bishop of, but not so much the pastor of. And I don't mean that there really is in the New Testament rules about bishops and pastors. What I mean is that in Asia Minor, what we now think of as Turkey, there were a lot of congregations, areas of the world, cities where Christians gathered together in groups and they supported each other and they each were cared for at least by one teacher. That is, when they would gather together, somebody who was recognized to be the guy to do this would stand up and open the Bible and talk about what the Bible says. But they all were in submission to John, himself their greater elder, precisely because he was the last living apostle. We know this a little bit from the book of Revelation, which we've not looked at yet this year. It's still coming. We'll do it. But in the book of Revelation, John writes that whole uh, apocalypse, that entire revealing, he writes it to seven congregations, all of them in Asia Minor, all of them receiving the letter from him as from Jesus Christ. Now, we also know that there are more than just those seven congregations because Laodicea is very near what we think of as Colossa. And Colossa gets a letter from Paul, and Laodicea gets a letter from John. But Colossa does not get one from John. Does that mean they weren't a church? No. It just means he didn't write the book of Revelation to them. In any case, we don't know which congregation he writes 2 John to. We only know that he writes it to the elect lady and her children. Now, I'm reading that out of verse 1 of the book, again, on page 1025 of your pew Bible. I'm sure you can find it in your own Bible as well. You go to the very back, that's Revelation, and then before that's Jude, and then there's Third and Second John right there. But he writes to the elect lady and her children. Now, if you can, look at Third John and how it starts. It's very different, although I actually think it's to the same church. Yeah? It says, the elder, which is how he started the other one, that's himself, John, the elder to the beloved Gaius. There aren't many letters in the New Testament just to one person. Philemon is to one person. Yeah? Timothy is to one person. But here, Third John is really the letter to Gaius. But who's Gaius? And I hope to show you, I'm not going to like make this my main point today, but maybe you'll see, it would seem that these two letters go together as if there's a, two sets of scroll being sent to one place, one for the congregation and one for the pastor. And so let me submit to you that Gaius is the pastor of the elect lady. Go back to chapter 2, 2 John verse 1, this elect lady if you look at the very end of 2 John, verse 13, it will say, the children of your elect sister greet you. So now we have a letter to an elect lady with greetings from an elect sister. And from there, you can start to piece together 
oh, he's talking about two different congregations. Yeah, he's writing to one congregation of Christians, elect people, chosen by God to be the bride. Just like Ephesians 5 calls all Christians the bride of Christ. We also, the bride of Christ, yet different from you because we live in a different place, we greet you. Out of this, the habit of referring to congregations as she and her has been a normal thing through most of Christian history. It's only in an insane age like our own, where she and her is no longer allowed to be said even about women sometimes, that we could possibly be upset about such things. You might be old enough to remember when every car and every boat was a she and a her. We've lost that now, as we've lost the ability to distinguish between male and female, among other things. Because what we've really lost is the ability to tell the truth, which will be a primary thing that John is focused on here. Let's not get ahead of ourselves. Again, so my submission to you is we have two letters that are going hand in hand, one to the congregation, one to the pastor of the congregation, largely saying things that are in 1 John. In fact, we'll look at a little 1 John this morning to show that at one point. But also what we'll see in 3 John is he's going to call out some people by name. He's going to tell Gaius specifically that this guy, Diatrophes, is not to be trusted, and he's to be corrected and rebuked publicly. And then he's going to encourage him to trust a guy named Demetrius. We'll get there toward the end. We'll probably go quickly through that. But what I want you to take from this again now is something that's going to come back a number of times. And that is that when you stand upon the truth, not everybody is going to like it. When you stand upon reality and refuse to let the liar lie, there will be some people who will blame you for it and side with the liar. And it is not new that such people will say that you're not being loving for speaking the truth. In fact, there's one place where Luther even writes a pox on that love which would deny the truth in order to keep it. Now, I think you understand how weak-wristed the word love is in American English. It can be used to refer to everything from a movie to a piece of pizza to the person you're going to spend the rest of your life with. That is such a broad word, it is practically meaningless. And so we need to understand, we talked about this a little bit last week, how the love that John primarily has in mind is first self-sacrifice. Willingness to stay with someone who doesn't deserve it because you love them. And second, brotherly love, which also, if you have brothers, you kind of know. There's going to be some mm, fisticuffs. There's going to be some crushing going on between you, and yet you would never not think of them as your brother. And what John wants is for us to see Christians that way. Not the whole world first, but all Christians as brothers whom we are to love in the truth. Does that mean we're to hate our neighbor if they're not a Christian? No, it's nonsense. You're supposed to love your enemy too. Yeah, but that's only after you understand the meaning of love is founded upon the brotherhood that we have in the truth of who Jesus is, what he's done, and what he's coming again to do. But our main point here at the start, before we dig into the text, is I want you to assume, 
I want you to assume that love and truth are two sides of the same coin. And you can't have one without the other. If someone says you have to lie because if you won't tell the lie, it's not loving, they're the liar. And I would submit to you, I don't think I have to give you examples, that we live in a time where you can come up with your own examples about people asking you to tell lies, whether it's about things like marriage, whether it's about things like governmental control, whether it's about things like medicine. You, you figure it out. You know where the lies are. My point is when they say it's not loving for you to not keep the lie, they're wrong. You're loving them by saying the truth. And John's very clear about this too then. The ultimate truth is what Jesus says. And so being attentive to his words is the key to understanding love. All right, so let's go back to verse 1 of 2 John and just kind of keep going through the whole thing. Here we go. The elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth. He sets it out right there. Love and truth, they go hand in hand. And not only I, but also all who know the truth. So here he submits to you that to know the truth is to become loving. We did talk about this last week, about how salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, opens your eyes in a way that nothing else can. Because once your identity is secure in God's sight, once you never have to worry about who you're going to be in order to earn God's love, because you know he already has loved you enough to die for you, to choose you, and to promise to sanctify you, now you can for the first time see others as they really are. Before you have an identity in Christ, your good works are always for yourself. You're always doing good to get good. You're always doing good to not get bad. Christ says, I'm going to give you good. And now you can be able to do good just to give it. In fact, you can even do good and get bad in return and know that's how God is to you. Only salvation in Christ teaches such an idea. Okay, knowing the truth Because, verse 2, of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. That word abiding is going to show up again. And I'll just give you the hat tip. It's about the word of God being in your heart and in your mouth and in your mind. It's about the fact that he is risen. That that's the Holy Spirit. You saying that is the Holy Spirit abiding in you. And to continue to abide in that truth is to be a child of God forever. This shall never pass away. Christ has died, Christ is risen, and Christ will come again to bring a perfect world where every one of your tears will be wiped from your eye, where every one of your shame-filled memories will be swept away into innocence, where all of the shadow and pain and rage of this life will be cast into a fire, but which a new heavens and a new earth will replace, in which you, in a new and resurrected body, will get to live and enjoy forever. This will abide. Yes? And so because of that, verse 3, grace 
mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son, look at it again, in truth and love. Not just in love and not just in truth, but in truth and love as two sides of the same coin. And he also introduces that to know the Father is to know the Son. And to know the Son is to know the Father. And you can get all tripped up trying to figure out the doctrine of the Trinity and how it makes sense. That's not his point. His point is that the God that you see in this world, the one who created it all, if you try to figure out who he is from this world, you're going to be convinced he hates you. You really will. Because you're going to find that he's a God of wrath. You're going to find that he's a God who is so just that nobody gets out of this thing alive. And eventually, you're going to wonder why he's so harsh on everybody. But when you understand that this is a trapping of us in wrath in order to save us from it through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, when you see that the Father is working in Jesus Christ for you and that you come to eternity through Jesus Christ, now all of this wrath is but a passing dream. It's there. There's definitely suffering everywhere that you look unless you hold your eyes closed tight and it's still going to creep up on you eventually. But in Christ, all of that is taken into himself. Look at the man on the cross. What's he doing? He's suffering for you with what you have deserved in order to buy you back from it. Yes? So this idea that to know the Father, you must know the Son. Because only the Son of God has become flesh. That only has happened in the one man, Jesus Christ. It is only he who has died and risen again. That is what sets Christianity apart from everything else in the world. Buddha was a nice guy. I'm sure of it. And he helped people find calm in their lives. I don't have any doubt of it. And then he died. And he's still dead. Allah, not Allah, sorry, Muhammad. Muhammad may not have been a nice guy. Seems to have been a warrior prince. But he set some things in order. And he got people to work together for a common goal. Things Americans are usually trying to do. But then what happened? He died too. And he didn't rise from the dead. See, Jesus of Nazareth is different. He's different in this way. He is risen. Alleluia. Verse 4. He says, I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth. Imagine visitors from this congregation have come to John's congregation. Yes, and he finds that they say the things the apostles taught. Just as we were commanded by the Father. Now that word command is going to come back here. He says, verse 5, And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. All right, so that word commandment there was used like four times, several times singular, and then once in the plural. And for we Lutherans who are so good at knowing our catechism, which means whenever you hear the word commandment, you think of what? Someone said it. The Ten Commandments. We start thinking that's what he's talking about. And it's not, it's not untrue. 
He's not not talking about the Ten Commandments, but he's also not talking about the Ten Commandments. He's talking about the two great commandments, to love God with all your heart, all your mind, and all your soul, and then to love your neighbor as yourself. And then he is understanding the first commandment, to love God with all your heart and all your mind and all your soul, as believing in who Jesus is. That's what he means by those words. Now, to prove this to you, we're going to look at a little of 1 John that we didn't look at last week. It's just like a page back. We're going to look at chapter 3, beginning at verse 16, where he's going to have this same kind of commandment talk. And hopefully it clarifies it there a little bit. He says this, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. Notice that again. What's love? Is love shutting your mouth because someone says you're wrong? No. Love is that Jesus died for you. That's love. All definitions of love come after that. He laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Notice there again, I said before, we're to love Christians first, the world second. It doesn't mean don't love your physical neighbor, but it means your truest neighbor is the Christian who feasts upon Christ with you. That's what he means by loving the brothers. This is love, that we know Jesus laid down his life for us and that we love each other as Christians. The two great commandments. Verse 17, but if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? All right, so, so if you don't care about the other Christians, they're just whatever people to you, are you sure you know who God is, is his question. So he says, verse 18, little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. And here again, we see that love requires truth because love is a certain type of behavior. If I can only love you by what I feel like is right, then when I feel like murdering you, that must be love. That's the kind of thinking, the lack of logic the world we're in uses right now. It just hasn't quite gotten to murder yet. Although those who advocate for the murder of the unborn, abortion, will say things like, it's better for them to die than live a life in a broken home. They say that. So for the sake of love, what do they do? They murder. No, that's not how love works. Love is to act in deed and truth. Again, according to what God has shown us in his word. Verse 19, by this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before him. That doesn't mean by your perfect keeping of the commandments, you know you're a Christian. It means that because you know the commandments are true and you know who Jesus is, you're a Christian. But if you deny the commandments, if you say it's okay to commit adultery, if you stiffen your neck against going to church, yes, well then the question is there. What do you know? What do you really believe? For verse 20, whenever our heart condemns us, that's what happens when you judge yourself by the commandments, God is greater than our heart because he knows everything. That is, he knows who you are better than you do. And he's chosen you to be his son, his adopted child, more than you even can remember it in your heart. So, beloved, knowing that, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. Yes, when you know who Jesus is, what he's done, what he's coming again to do, you have a way to stand against this world that they don't have. You're like a brass wall while they are chaff that the wind drives away. 
More than this, you have God on your side by means of prayer. Verse 22, whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ. I'm going to read that part again, just in case you're getting hung up on the word commandment and the Ten Commandments and thinking you got to judge yourself by the law every time he says keep his commandments. This is the commandment that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another. The two great words again, love God, love your neighbor, just as he commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. Can you see how this is not about works? This is about faith. This is about the word of God taking root in your heart and changing the way that you see. That doesn't mean works won't be involved. That doesn't mean it won't change how you behave. That's just not what it's about. That's the fruit that comes from the faith. But Christianity is about depositing the faith into you and giving you commands which deposit faith in you. Other commands like go into all nations and baptize them in the name of Father, Son, and Spirit, and I'll be with you. That's a promise. It's also a command. Or here's another one. Take and eat. This is my body. That's a promise and a command. Not a moral work you do to earn anything, but a declaration by God to you of things that shall never not be. Yes? And that's where the certainty comes. That in him, we have things that will never pass away. All right. So going back to verse 7 of 2 John, where he warns us that not everyone believes this. Not even all those who say, I'm a Christian. It says, for many deceivers have gone out into the world. Those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the Antichrist. Now, those of you who were in this service last week, you got that extended discourse on how there are many Antichrists and how the Lutheran confessions call the Pope the Antichrist. But we really mean he's the man of lawlessness from Second Thessalonians. But in fact, when he denies that Jesus is the head of the church, he is acting in the position of Antichrist. But of course, since there are many antichrists, it is anyone who denies that Jesus is the Savior. Just as he says here again, so very succinctly, who is the deceiver? Who is the antichrist? Those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Those who do not believe that Jesus is the Son of God and their Savior. Now, this should encourage us a little bit. As Lutherans, we're very keen on holding on to everything the Bible says. Like, we really don't want false doctrine even a little bit because, you know, Jesus says a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Like, that's a bad thing. But there's also some optimism here. There's this truth that God saves people in spite of their heresies, in spite of their errors. That's not a reason to let the errors stand, but it's a reason to realize we're not the only Christians. Yeah? And I know most Lutherans don't think we're the only Christians, but a lot of other Christians think we think we're the only Christians. And it's because of how we talk. It's because we forget that, no, 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 the, the main thing is Jesus is Lord, right? 
He is risen, right? Hallelujah. And there are many, many other groups and traditions that though they deny baptismal regeneration and so they lose the peace of conscience that that gives, though they deny that the Lord's Supper is a free gift to make you pay for it to get it, and that also steals your conscience, yeah, that doesn't mean that through the fire and the flames, they're not going to be saved. And so you can know still right now in the United States, there are many, many brothers and sisters who are on our side who are hungry for this truth, who are wanting churches like St. Paul to just stick with the Bible and believe it all the more. And I am convinced, St. Paul, that we have seen the good things happening here, especially in the last year and a half, precisely because of this. There is a famine of the word right now. People go to and fro trying to find a place where the Bible's taught, and they go into a church, and there's a bunch of people there, and the Bible's not taught. I didn't say those places are church. And I'm not sure if they're filled with Christians. They might be, but they're starving. Yes? Yeah? But there are also many churches out there taking stands, just like we are, saying, we're going to believe this more than anything else, no matter what anyone else says. Okay, so enough on that. There are deceivers. There are liars. We want to reject what they say. And instead, verse 8, watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Yes, here the idea again is, okay, so right now, we're reading the Bible together. You're praying the Psalms at home. You're reading the Bible at home. Your pastor is teaching from the scripture every week. We're taking notes on it. We can just kind of realize we're good to go now, right? And that's that's actually never where you want to be. It's always continue to be on guard. Continue to be aware that you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, where the devil prowls around you like a roaring lion looking for one to devour. Continue to judge me, your pastor, and never stop. Because there can come a day where I fall away. You might not think that's possible. Pastor Fitz never going to fall. I could. I could. And... But for me, believing he will not let me, I would think I would. So I cast myself back on him. I cast that care on him. And I pray that he keeps me faithful. But part of that means me telling you, (laughs) yeah, watch, listen, test me. How? By what it says. Am I saying what it says? Or here's another test. Do you walk away feeling guilty? You ever go to church and walk away feeling guilty? Because that means they're not preaching Jesus. They're preaching something else at that point, right? And this should always be, I I pray to Jesus, it is always how I leave you at the end of this, that you know who you are in him. That whatever else you got to face out there, you don't want to face, you know when it's all said and dead on judgment day, you're going to stand with your head held high, covered in the blood. Watch lest we lose that, because we never want to. And anytime, mark my words, anytime a church shrinks, it's because they've already lost it. They've already lost it. Yeah. Exception if someone kills it. If they burn the church down, they kill us all. That doesn't count. But that drifting away that we're so afraid of happening, mm, we stopped watching. Yeah. Verse 9, what happens when you're not watching? Somebody goes on ahead. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide, there's that word again, in the teaching of Christ, that's an important word, the teaching of Christ does not have God. Yeah. So you have what the Bible says. 
And then you have people who want to say, we need more than what the Bible says. That's going on ahead. And anybody who wants to build their faith personally, their family together, or their congregational life around more than what the Bible says, they're going on ahead. And John says, they don't have God. Does that mean that person's burning in hell? I don't know. Maybe, maybe not. But it does mean that congregation is going to slip and slide. Yeah. The congregation that has God abides in what Jesus says. It abides in his teaching. That word there is didaskalos. I want you to say it with me. Didaskalos. It's going to show up again in a moment. It means doctrine. That's a word a lot of people don't like. Doctrine just means truth that never changes. Something you can be certain about. The thing that you stand on because it gives you confidence. And let me encourage you then to consider that the teaching of Jesus is indeed the entire Bible. But the entire Bible is not easy to access. I started reading the book of Leviticus this week. Not kidding. One chapter a day. Let me tell you, that one's rough. It's rough. Uh, I'm going to get through it, but not, it's not for everyone. I really mean that. Like You don't have to. But what you should do is read the red letters. What you should do is pick up those gospels and hear what your king says. He will blow you away. He will give you conviction. He will give you hope. He will stop you in your tracks and he will lift you up. You will say, why are you saying this, Jesus? And you will say, thank you for saying this, Jesus. And that is life in the faith. If you pick up one of those Sons of Solomon packets on your way out in the back, these are designed for men to learn to pray the Psalms together. Those of us who've begun it here, talk to any one of them. It's bound us together in ways that are kind of unimaginable. There's one in the works for ladies, Daughters of Wisdom. Hopefully that'll be around by, uh, by Easter this year, I, I hope. But in the back of that packet that encourages you to pray nine psalms every day, the same psalms every day, there's two more things that you can do if you want to take it to the next level in your prayer life. One of them is to pray eight verses of Psalm 119 every day. Psalm 119 is one that stops people in their tracks a lot. They're reading along and they get to Psalm 118, and they're kind of happy because it's like six verses. It's over really fast. That was a quick one today. I get to go on. And you look at Psalm 119, it's like 160 some odd verses, 170 some odd verses. Oh my goodness, it's going to take me all of eight minutes. You know, it's way too much time. Now, I'm being sar sarcastic there a little bit, but it really is long. But there's enough there, and it's broken into stanzas, that if you just take eight verses every day, in almost a month, you'll go through the whole thing and start over. And if you keep going... It'll create a pattern in your life where these words will become familiar to you. You'll start to look forward to certain sections of it. Be glad that they're back. I'll then, today is MAME for me. It's under the section MAME. It's my favorite one. And I always go through it too fast because I try to read it several times in the day and I always get MAME just once, even though it's my favorite. And the next day I, I open it up again. Like, oh, I forgot to read MAME again yesterday. It's so, it's so fulfilling to me. So that's one of the things you can do. But the other thing that's so simple this is so easy, right? Even if you don't do anything else in Bible reading, open up to the book of Matthew. You got to have a red letter Bible, but you open up to the book of Matthew and you find the first verse with red letters. Just read that verse. Maybe write it down. Maybe make a note on it. Put the note in your pocket. Leave it on your desk. Doesn't matter. Come back next day. Find the next red letter verse. Do it again. Is that going to give you Peeper's dogmatics and teach you how to be an ultimate theologian? No. Is it going to feed your faith? You better believe it. 
Is it going to wake you up? Absolutely. Be a red letter reader. Listen to what Jesus says. Again, he says here, St. John in 2 John, abide in the teaching of Christ. The last part of verse 9, whoever abides in that didaskalos, say it with me, didaskalos, whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, didaskalos, say it with me, didaskalos, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. Now, again, this I would submit to you is largely about me or any pastor who would come and tell you something other than the, what the Bible says. You're not even supposed to be nice to us. Take that seriously. For whoever greets him partakes in his wicked works. Now, for the sake of time, so we get to 3 John, we're going to move forward. Let's read verses 12 and 13. They sound almost like the end of 3 John. It's like a mirror. He says, Though I have much to write to you, I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face so that our joy may be complete. Again, the children of your elect sister greet you. Now, as you turn the page to 3 John, look at verse 13. It's going to sound like the same thing I just read. I had much to write to you, but I would rather not write with pen and ink. I hope to see you soon. And we will talk face to face. Yeah. So again, remember that these two letters probably go together from one congregation where John is both the bishop and the pastor to another congregation where John is the bishop, but not the pastor. And we just went through the letter to the congregation. And at the end, he says, I hope to visit soon. Now at the end of the letter to the pastor, he also says, I hope to visit soon. Let's look at what he says, though, specifically in the meantime. Verse 1, to the, el or the elder, to that beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Notice love and truth are together again. They're not separate. He says, verse 2, beloved, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. It's one of the few places in the entire New Testament where any apostle says, it's okay to have a healthy, wealthy life. There's whole groups of Christians out there that think you have to. To be a real Christian, you got to succeed in life. It's called the prosperity gospel. And Lutherans, sometimes we, we like to go against those wicked lies, but sometimes we fall off the other way. Here, John's very clear. Isn't it nice that you got good health? It goes well with the fact that you got good faith. Huh? That's nice there. Does that mean if you're sick that therefore you don't have faith? No, 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 no. But he's, he's glad. He's praying for him. He's praying that his life goes well. It's a nice thing. For he says, verse 3, I rejoice greatly when the brothers came. Remember how there's visitors from this other elect sister? Yeah. When the brothers came and testified to your truth. And indeed, you are walking in the truth. So he writes to him and says, I, I found some of your members they came through the congregation. I talked to them for a bit, and it's great to know you're teaching them what I'm teaching them, the truth about who Jesus is. Verse 4, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Yes, all the same stuff we've been talking about. Verse 5, beloved, it is a faithful thing you do 
in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are. Now, that's a new thing. Who are these brothers who are strangers? They're probably the ones who brought this letter. So now having had some of his congregation visit St. John, there are others John is sending somewhere else. They're stopping at this congregations of Gaius and they're moving on past them. And he's asking them to receive them like brothers, even though you don't know them. This is kind of like once upon a time, this is no joke. If you went from one Missouri Synod church to another Missouri Synod church and wanted to commune there, you actually had to pull out your card. You might have heard the joke about card carrying member. It's a real thing. They used to give you cards to be admitted to communion. But that is part of an even older idea. Because we move around a lot, we modern people. The ancient people didn't move around quite so much. And so if you were going to go from, say, here to New Orleans, it'd take you a while. Huh? A long while on a horseback or a car or even a boat. You wouldn't do a boat from here. But by the time you got there, you're not coming back for quite a while. And you're just going to walk into a church on Sunday morning and say, commune me? Well, what you would do is you would bring a letter, like this one, uh, that would say, hey, recognize them as coming from me. And so that card-carrying thing in the LCMS way back in the day was a relic of the idea that we should indeed know each other. And that, again, communion, hospitality, they're all tied together and they're part of pastoral care of the flock. All right, that's maybe too much on that there, but... Um, it is a faithful thing you do, all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, verse 6, who testified to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. Right. So he says, I'm, you're, they're going past you to somewhere else. For they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. So again, it looks like this maybe is a mission endeavor of some kind, but it's, I mentioned this is inside baseball. It's definitely kind of inside baseball. It's, it's a little hidden here. What does he mean? Verse 8, Therefore, we ought to support people like these, that we may be fellow workers for the truth. And it's true. We want to support good Christian missionaries wherever we can. But now, verses 9 and following is where it gets personal. And I really want us to get something out of this today, where he says, I have written something to the church. I think that's 2 John. But Diotrephes, who's some guy who's a member at the church, Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So, so I wrote a letter, but I know this guy's not going to listen to it. Yeah? So if I come, which he says he's going to do, I will bring up what he is doing. Ooh. <laughs> yeah? We'll have a little face-to-face. -face. Uh, they call those come-to-Jesus moments, right? And, and rightly so. Uh, I will bring up what he is doing, talking wicked nonsense against us. And not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who want to and puts them out of the church. Uh, so we have some guy who is acting like his own authority, rejecting the teaching of the apostles and destroying the church. It's about all we know, except for that we know John doesn't think too highly of this. And he wants Gaius to watch out for it and not let it happen if he can. Verse 11, beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Oh, that's so good right there by itself. You could write that one down, put it on your mirror. You know, look at it every morning. Beloved, do not imitate evil, imitate good. 
You, you would think that would be obvious. I don't think it's so easy. But whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God. So that was Diotrephes. He's imitating evil. Now we get Demetrius is imitating good. Verse 12. Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself. We also add our testimony, and you know that our testimony is true. So if I have to explain that, I would say I think Demetrius is the guy who's actually carrying the letter. And Gaius doesn't know him. But John says, receive Demetrius. He's not like Diotrephes. Watch out for him. Receive Demetrius and then help him on his way as he goes on to be a missionary or a pastor wherever he is going. Because he clings to what? That truth, which we've gone all the way through this, that truth which inspires true love. That truth of the love of the Father for you, so that he sent his only begotten Son into this world, that you might not perish but be made alive in him. That Son of God who is Jesus of Nazareth, who gives you the first fruits of the Holy Spirit through the truth that he is risen. Alleluia. That is the gospel the good news, the promise, the fact that changes everything and that will ultimately inspire you to learn how to see others as more valuable than yourself, not as though you don't have value, but because you already know you're valued by God. So what do you need to give yourself? Nothing. You're here on his behalf, right? You're here as his child, his emissary. You're immortal now. Your life's never going to pass away. So again, love and truth go together, and this ultimately is Christianity. If I have to close this here, I think I do. Let us not forget then that love and truth not only came down once long ago, but come down right now. This meal that we're about to share with each other is a meal of God's Son descending in the flesh to become one with you in the flesh, that your faith might be awakened in your flesh, to love your brothers and sisters around you who are part of that same ultimate body of our risen Lord Jesus Christ, because indeed we feast upon him right now. In the name of Jesus, amen.